You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same This week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, and I can't remember where you moved to. Sandy Springs, is that right? S- Sandy Springs, that's the one. Although we have an Atlanta mailing address, so you can always just say Atlanta. Atlanta, the great in the greater Atlanta area. We're outside the perimeter, so I know a lot of people don't like it if you're outside the perimeter and you say that you're from Atlanta. But hey, my mailing address says Atlanta, so if I want to say that, I'm going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I get the whole perimeter thing. Um, we're uh, Houston has two perimeters, and I work between the two, Ooh. and I live outside the second one. Um, wow. What, one of my colleagues... Out in the sticks. Yeah. <laughs> One of my colleagues laid a map of the state of Connecticut on top of the greater Houston area, and basically, you could put you could fit can- uh, Connecticut into the greater Houston area. So, you almost said Canada. I almost said Canada. No, you can't fit. <laughs> you could Canada. probably fit the population of Canada into the greater Houston area. <laughs> uh, maybe I haven't actually looked up that data. Um, I'm sure it's not true. Also. Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Why is everyone living at a spring but me? Couldn't say, couldn't say. But but we need all the seasons, David. Yeah, we do need all the seasons. Well, before How we, many do you have in Houston? Just the one. one? Just the yeah. one. <laughs> Humid? Summer and lesser summer. Demi summer. Summer with more wet. Um yeah, so before we get into today's topic, uh, what is on the network? So, we have another uh, episode on country music over on City of Man. Uh, Michael, uh, what's the country this week? I think it's uh, the first decade of the 21st century, and as usual, I don't remember anything I said on that. I, I, honestly, I think that's sometimes better. Uh, well, we also... it does mean that I can go listen to it and kind of enjoy it. Mm. Hey, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, you recorded it like eight years ago, right? Yeah, I, I think it was before I was married. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we also have a Profiles interview with Barry Harvey. Tell us about that, David. Yes, sir. Barry Harvey is a professor of theology at Baylor University. He's also uh, teaches in their uh, in their honors college. Uh, I think he might be the director, if I remember rightly. Don't have the book in front of me. Uh, his book is titled uh, Baptist in the Catholic Tradition, almost exactly the same title as uh, the interview that I uh, profiles interview for the previous week. Um, his is a very different, uh, a very different perspective. 
Uh, he's walking less through kind of a, a considering a consideration of kind of comparative dogmatics and church history so much as uh, what is uh, a, a biblically faithful and historically humble stance that Christians of different uh, traditions can take as they journey together towards the ultimate oneness in the future and seeing what that's going to look like in the present. So, yeah. Oh, I guess it's my turn again, isn't it? Yep, that's where you <laughs> take us into the episode. <laughs> well, our topic this week, if you remember, is the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch, one of the uh, so-called uh, apostolic fathers, not himself an apostle, but in the generation after the apostles. So uh, we're looking at one of the earliest uh, surviving writings of that church in the next generation. So if Paul is Kirk, I guess Ignatius is Picard? Something like that? Uh, something like that. Cool. Well, who is... Although where, where does Polycarp fit into that? Yeah, maybe he's Picard. Maybe, he, yeah, Polycarp. So, so, we're, so we're reading Riker? Yeah, maybe so. Uh, I don't think we're Wesley. I don't think we're reading Wesley Crusher though. Who would be the Wesley Crusher of the episode? Anyway, that's that's a different thought experiment for a different day. So, who is this Anna, uh, Ignatius of Antioch? Um, history, legends, a little bit of both. Uh, can we sort this out, Nathan? We can establish historically that he died in the first half of the second century. Although, where in that fifty years is uh, somewhat a matter of dispute. Uh, we can say that he was almost certainly martyred, uh, although where and how are also a matter of, uh, you know, further elaboration, we'll put it that way. So that's the historical skeleton. Let's get to the fun stuff, the legend. Uh, legendarily, uh, he and Polycarp, who we just mentioned, were together disciples of the Apostle John, uh, the one of the 12 disciples who did not die violently. Uh, during the first century, but, you know, uh, lived out to a, a ripe old age. Uh, we know that he identifies himself in his letters as the God-bearer, uh, Theophorus. Uh, and so, you know, probably what that signifies is that, you know, he is one who bears uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God to people uh, wherever he goes. Uh, and then, I mean, what's really interesting uh, is that in his letters, he often refers to his own impending martyrdom. Uh, he refers to being devoured by beasts. Uh, and so there is sort of an ongoing elaboration on that that begins, you know, not many years after his death. Someone mentions in writing that uh, he was taken to Rome to be executed. And then later on, it becomes he was taken to Rome and killed by beasts. And then later on, it becomes he was taken to Rome and killed by beasts in the Colosseum. And then later on, it becomes he's escorted to Rome and eaten by lions in the Colosseum. So uh, however many of those levels you want to uh, call historical, uh, I'm fine with that. I don't have any way to dispute it because uh, documentation in those early decades of the Christian church is, is notoriously scant. Uh, his feast day is in uh, mid to late October, which I imagine is why we're doing this today. And David, I imagine you mentioned that last week and I've just forgotten. Yep. Um, but 
those are the the basics. Uh, are there any other biographical details, David, that you want to add before we move on to the letters? Just that there is a legend about that that nickname Theophorus that probably isn't accurate, but nonetheless uh, it arose later, and you'll encounter it, uh, which takes that uh, that etymology, um, the the Christ bearer, um, in a different way, and renders it something like the one that Christ bears, and uh, and says identifies Ignatius with. Uh, the little child that Jesus picks up and says that unless you become like one of him, you won't enter the kingdom. Oh man, do I want that to be true? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, which that's like that's like uh, that that retroactive uh, thing where they said that the kid whom Tony Stark saves in Iron Man Two is actually Peter Parker. Right, right. I, and, you know, before that, every Dickens novel. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm good with that. Who knows if it's true, but I like it. Well, there is a tendency in uh, some of the early, early church uh, hagiography and martyrs' lives to try to sort of forest gump people back into previous episodes, uh, which I find... I find mostly charming and can see why that would be very, uh, very attractive. Um, but whenever it seems that Ignatius is explaining what that name means, he never references that story himself. He always speaks of it in terms of, I am the one bearing Christ, not Christ, the one bearing me. Um, right, right. Well, and also, I feel like that's something he would have mentioned in in one of these letters that he uh, he had been picked up as a child by Christ. You think it'd work in there somewhere? Although, David, you know when I find that kind of thing the most charming. Oh yeah. Uh, it's when I've spent any time with a New Testament studies person who spends all of their time saying that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. That really <laughs> yeah. didn't happen. I, I I like the idea of fostering a kind of naive reading of these hagiographies. Yeah, I, I, after about an hour of that, I'm like, no, bring on the legend. I want more of it. <laughs> Let's be honest, though. In terms of crazy stuff happening in hagiographies, that's not even in the top 50%. No. You know, people's heads get cut off, and then the heads continue to talk, and there's all sorts of stuff. I will, I will point out, though, that um, he seems to have died in, like, 110, 115. Uh, which means that if he was indeed held as a baby by Christ, he was very, very old when he died. Very old. Right. Yeah. So, so some, some of this, some of the, the hagiographic legendary extensions um, fudge the, uh, the chronology a bit. Uh, another, another one of the issues, and I, and, and I think this is at the back of um, the, the chronolo chronological range that you mentioned, Nathan, which is uh, trying to establish under under which emperor's reign did he die? Um, some of the 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 oldest traditional account that I know of, um, I think names Trajan, but maybe maybe that's not. Maybe that's Eusebius. At any rate, there seems to be some some difficulty about um, 
dating it is always a challenge because they don't they aren't using those nice handy convenient ACBCs uh, ADBCs um, at that time. They're just saying during the reign of whoever, and you know, a lot of times when these legends are or when these histories are written down, whichever they are, when they're being written down, um, you know, even a few decades later, they can get a little whiffy about who's Caesar when. Sure. And especially since about six of them had the same name. Yeah. The emperors, that is. Yeah. Oh, that didn't help. That didn't help. Well, the... Uh, Ignatius calls himself the Christ bearer, so we should consider, Michael, uh, who is the Christ whom he confesses? Who is the Christ whom he is uh, bearing around the world? What is the gospel to which he bears witness? So I'm going to give three designations of Christ that I think hold pretty well across these letters, and you guys can add what you want. Number one, Christ is the the he says the mind of the father so he is he is a kind of instantiation of the godhead which is exactly what you would expect from a, a first century second century christian that's a that's an orthodox conception although put in a in a kind of oddly platonic way jesus christ our inseparable life is the mind of the father just as the bishops appointed throughout the world are in the mind of christ that's very early in the letter to the ephesians uh, another answer, which which goes along with that one, is that Christ is the the God whose story has been passed down first by the apostles, and then by the continuing church hierarchy. And I'm going to have more to say about the hierarchy later, um, but I won't. Uh, so I won't. I won't dwell on that here. But it is important that the the Christ we know we know because, uh, as Paul says, it was passed down through these particular channels. And then third is Christ is the agent of unity and sanctification in the church. So the idea is if we cling to the God who is the mind of the Father and who is revealed uh, by the apostles and, and the church hierarchy, then we will be unified. And in that unity, we'll achieve our sanctification. So Christ is the one who kind of works out our holiness, and he does it uh, through our embodiment in the church, if that's the right term. Mm. What should we add to that, Nathan? Uh, I mean, those are the, the points that I uh, focused on mainly. I mean, one interesting side note, also in the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, is the one who, being baptized, makes the water of baptism oh. something that purifies. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? It really is. So, I mean, you know, he is... In his lifetime, and I think this is important because uh, historically, you know, some theology has tended to limit the transforming character of Christ to the resurrection, and some have leaned so heavily towards the incarnation that it forgets the middle bits. Uh, but for Ignatius, uh, it is his his the passive moment of his baptism by which the Father renders water something that can purify the sinner. And I love that image. I really do. Yeah. He, well, he's, he really is a poet 
um, in, in his use of language and his use of metaphor and analogy. He, he has just striking image after striking image after striking image. And what strikes me about that one is how sacramental it is, right? That, that's, that's very much in line with the kind of high church conception of baptism as, as a physical event that really does accomplish something. It's not a symbol. Those waters are actually doing something, and they're doing something for Ignatius because Christ himself was baptized in them. He didn't need to be baptized, but in doing so, he made baptism a sacrament and not just uh, not just a symbol. Yeah, I, I, there's another one. Oh gosh, I don't have it. I don't have it right in front of me. But the one where he talks about uh, the Christ setting up the cross as a crane and the Holy Spirit as the rope, and uh, we're being we're being elevated through means of this uh, this mechanism that is both. The divine persons and uh, the historical economy of salvation, uh, I, I think, is uh, that, that's 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 a pretty that's a pretty interesting one too. There's a number of high-profile Catholic converts from Protestantism who claim that their conversion was enacted by reading the the. Um, the, the generation of church fathers right after the apostles. And I have always, I've always suspected that it's Ignatius they mean, because you really do find a lot of contemporary Catholic doctrine in, uh, in seed form here in these letters. And sometimes not even in seed form, already more or less developed. Uh, so so that's, a, that's a fun thing to read for me. Mm-hmm. The other one is little bits of what I would call maybe proto-creeds. Uh, they aren't presented in in the in the uh, liturgical place that a creed stands in in the sense that uh, like a baptismal creed or a creed recited um, as part of a, a, regu- a regular um, service of worship, but instead it has the form of um, the content that we identify with you know things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Um, so Jesus. Uh, our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived by Mary according to a divine purpose of the seed of the David and yet of the Holy Spirit, who was born and baptized, that by his passion he might purify water. Right. So, you know, that, that phrase that you were focusing on just then is part of this, this larger um, paragraph where he is sort of walking through Christ's identity as virgin-born, incarnate, Holy Spirit-conceived, God, um, and there are a few others in his uh, in his epistles that do that that present something very like that. So you get the sense that this is something that he says a lot. So even if it's not in a presented in a litur- liturgical context or in one of those other kind of contexts that we encounter creedal declarations, in which they're you know attested uh, later in church life, it does seem as if He's saying this sort of thing often enough that when you raise the question, who is Jesus, it's going to come out of him pretty much in this form. Sure. Well, and you, you would expect him to say the creeds a lot because as a bishop, he's no, I don't know exactly what the role of the bishop was in the second century, but surely he would have been presiding over sacraments like baptism, like the Eucharist and would be using certain formulas, although we don't know exactly what formulas those are. Right. 
Right. Does anybody does anybody seriously believe that the Apostles' Creed predates Ignatius? Just out of curiosity. No. No. I mean, I know it's it, it's called the Apostles' Creed, and there's the old story that each one of them added uh, one part of it. But I I I I I've never heard anybody take that seriously. So I didn't know if maybe he was actually operating off of something like the Apostles' Creed, or if maybe the Apostles' Creed comes from sources like Ignatius of Antioch. It's yeah, I think it's B. Um... The, what's called the Apostles' Creed in the West is a form of the old Western Roman creed. Um, but the use of Trinitarian creeds that have that form, especially as part of the rite of baptism, is something that seems to have been pretty much universal East and West, um, so that when it comes time to formulate uh, the when it comes time to expound the results of of ecumenical councils, it takes the form of a Trinitarian baptismal creed with those clarifications appended or, or inserted woven into the creed. Right. So it presumes the idea that the ordinary, you know, the ordinary person in the pew or priest in the front, uh, is going to recognize this as a regular form in which what Christians believe is stated and testified. When there there are creeds, arguably in the New Testament epistles, right? Is it is mm-hmm. it First Corinthians that has the 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 kind of proto creed that that Paul is apparently quoting? Yeah, or is that Colossians? I think it, uh, that both. Yeah, and you know, there's there's a good case to be made for Philippians two as a creedal recitation as well so i mean depending on depending on your degree of conservatism about when the gospels were written the creeds actually might predate the formulation of the gospel uh so (laughs) again all all of that i mean you have to be pretty conservative though i mean like bart ehrman writes that (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i meant i meant conservative about the dates of the gospels surely there are people who think mark for example was written in the 40s or 50s I, I, those people are out there, but I mean, among people in academic biblical studies, I mean, uh, most will go ahead and concede that uh, Paul's letters predate the four synopt or the four canonical gospels. Right. Yeah. That, well, that, that's I, I I I know that's the mainstream position. I'm I'm just saying that you you would have to be I, I said conservative. You'd have to be very extreme. Right, right. I mean, it's kind of like the people who still try to make Job the oldest book in the Old Testament, even though it seems to be riffing on Psalm 8. <laughs> mm-hmm. As Michael's already brought up, Nathan, uh, Ignatius is very concerned that Christian congregations experience unity, both with other congregations of Christians in other places and within their own communities. So what are the elements that Ignatius sees as marks of that unity at the macro level and at the micro level. Rather than macro and micro, I'm going to talk about symbolic and then I'm going to talk about practical. So on a symbolic level, once again, uh, Ignatius has a a poetic rhetorical flair. He talks about the church as a choir that only sounds like a choir when it is in harmony uh, within itself. Uh, He uses the image of the enclosure of the altar in the uh, Epistle to the Ephesians. And there he also talks about prayer 
as something that is more powerful when those within that enclosure of the altar pray together than it would be uh, if they prayed individually. Uh, we've got images of a, a festal procession. Uh, we've got images of a, a flock of sheep. Uh, and, you know, listeners, of course, you're hearing this. and I mean, a lot of these are echoes of New Testament images. Uh, and, you know, um, I want to say Polycarp, but that's not his name. Ignatius uh, uses those images and, and riffs on them and, you know, uh, reformulates them. So it's, it's really good stuff in that respect. Uh, as far as the practical uh, care, uh, side of unity, uh, there is a unity of the table. Uh, there is a unity of the worshiping congregation. But what he comes back to over and over and over again is something that Michael made note of earlier, and that is the unity uh, under the bishop. So there is a working analogy that uh, appears uh, in the epistle to the Magnesians as well as in the epistle to the Ephesians that, the, that Christ is to the Father as the bishop is to Christ. So in other words, the bishop, uh, his person is participating in Christ in the same way that uh, Christ is participating in the Father. And for that reason, uh, unity in this body of writings is to act in accord with one's bishop. Uh, in Magnesians, he comes in, he, he uh, comes back to this over and over and over again. Uh, he does say that uh, he did not get to see the entire uh, congregation, but because he saw the bishop, therefore by participation he also saw the celebrants. Uh, so, again, when we talk about unity, it has to do with the bishop. In the letter to the Philadelphians, uh, repentance for the one who has gone astray means returning to the bishop. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, again, the bishop in this body of writings is the person of Christ, uh, you know, here uh, among the faithful, right? Uh, and what I find uh, fascinating in the, the letter to Polycarp uh, is that we get paired with those images a metaphor of desertion. It's a, it's a military metaphor so that when people leave the church, it's not only themselves that they are endangering, but it is the integrity of the unit, so to speak, uh, that, is a, that is at stake there. Uh, so, I mean, you know, uh, what Michael mentioned earlier, I mean, that this is a, a highly, highly hierarchical imagination of church unity is absolutely true. So, uh, Michael, that's, a, that's about a half dozen images of, uh, you know, Episcopal unity. Are there any others you want to pick up on? Um, the I love his his metaphor uh, in Ephesians about unity and submission. He says that the the church at Ephesus is a lyre tuned to the bishop's strings. So that's that's just another example of uh, of Ignatius's uh, kind of poetry. I, I would also point out that um, unity is the stay against heresy for Ignatius. So if if the if if the various Christians at the various churches he's writing at manage to be unified, they will avoid being led astray by uh, by false doctrine and by false teachers and by Satan. Uh, uh, and 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 again, the magisterium is part of that. The magisterium will will give them the doctrine that will allow them to uh, to to be secure and unified against those external th and internal threats. Right, and that's a thread that runs through Philadelphians as well as Smyrdians. Yeah, I mean, it's one of his favorite 
it's one of his favorite go-to themes uh, that's unifying um, most, if not all, of these letters. Uh, if you if you do what I do, uh, dear listener, and you uh, get an audio version of this, um, you kind of can't let your mind drift because these letters aren't super long, and uh, if you miss that one ended and another one started, it, it kind of starts to run together. But... Uh, if that happens, something else, uh, you, you become aware of the degree to which um, Ignatius has these particular overriding concerns that just keep coming up and keep coming up. One thing, though, that I think is, is helpful in recognizing why these things are coming up uh, is that uh, Ignatius is looking towards, and this is, this is uh, mentioned in all these letters, uh, that he's looking towards his uh, his imminent uh, his imminent execution his his uh-huh. martyrdom and is he ever yes and he is writing letters to these churches as he is moving across the map towards that final destination so he has this strong concern to exhort Christians to a kind of strong unity that will be able to hold up in the face of the threat that he himself is facing. Um, the possibility that uh, persecution and the possibility of martyrdom can lead to, a, lead to apostasy is one that the church in his level, uh, in, in, in his era, uh, dealt with. And so that those, those calls to faithfulness, to, uh, to community with one another, um, to listening to the wise old person who is presiding over your church <laughs> um, is, uh, I, I think that's got a, a, a very real interest as he's, uh, as he's heading toward that situation. Um, speaking of that execution, Michael, uh, you can't read the letters without getting this uh, a feeling for uh, a fervent enthusiasm that he feels for this. Uh, yeah, I would say execution. that's the striking. That's the striking feature of these letters. Yeah, uh, what does that death mean for Ignatius? And is he maybe a little too stoked about getting eaten by lions? Just in case our listeners haven't read um, read these letters, let me uh, let me read you an excerpt from. I think this is letter to the Romans. I am writing to all the churches and insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will. Unless you hinder me, I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. Let me be food for the wild beasts through whom I can reach God. I am I God's that passage too. <laughs> I am God's wheat, and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may prove to be pure bread. Better yet, coax the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and leave nothing of my body behind lest I become a burden to someone once I have fallen asleep. Then I will truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ when the world will no longer see my body. I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, May I have the pleasure of the wild beasts that have been prepared for me, and I pray that they prove to be prompt with me. I will even coax them to devour me promptly, not as they have done with some whom they were too timid to touch. And if when I am willing and ready they are not, I will force them. (laughs) So... Yeah, I would say he's pretty excited about it. And and I, I saw at least two reasons for that. Number one, um, 
his seriousness about the things he says is going to be proven by his willingness to suffer for them. And, and in that, it, I, it made me think of Kierkegaard's little essay uh, on the difference between a genius and an apostle. And in which the, 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 the apostle really is defined by who he comes from and what he's willing to go through for his message. And Ignatius, in that sense, uh, is an apostle, although, of course, not in the, uh, not in the theological sense of, uh, of being an apostle. And the other thing is that he has been, as he tells us in almost every letter, imperfectly sanctified. So, so he says, you know, many of you have reached it. I haven't yet reached it. I'm not, I'm not totally holy. And suffering is one way to make yourself, or to be made, I should say, more holy. And he says, it doesn't, I won't be justified by it. But that, that something, something about going through this experience will make him a saint, essentially, to use, to use a contemporary language about what we're talking about. And, and again, that's something the church has picked up on. And, and I believe that all martyrs um, are automatically made saints. They don't have to go through the normal um, post-mortem miracle process of becoming a saint. The, the assumption is if you're, if you're eaten by the wild animals because the Romans have thrown you to them, uh, your, your sanctification has been accomplished and you get to skip purgatory, I suppose. Um, and he is, he is certainly ready to do that. And, uh, and, and, uh, it, it's fr frankly, uh, it makes you feel bad when you read it, because I don't know about you guys. I would not be excited to be eaten by the wild animals. And I, would be, I would be praying not that they eat me quickly, but that they already had lunch and aren't going to be interested in eating me. Um, but that's not him. He, he wants to be martyred. His, his, his excitement about being martyred is, is overwhelming. Mm. There is a caution that I feel uh, as I read these epistles because of other martyrdom accounts um, that are from kind of near contemporary to that. Uh, there is, there's an account of the death of Polycarp that's uh dated to pretty close to when Ignatius uh, is is martyred and uh, they, they were you know they were of course associates but in that account uh, there is uh, a description of how Polycarp was uh, how, how he was caught by the authorities and arrested uh, and, and ultimately uh, killed but it says there was uh, one named Quintus uh, who, when he saw the wild beasts, played the coward. Now it was he who had forced himself and some others to come forward of their own accord. Uh, him, the proconsul, persuaded with many entreaties to take the oath and offer sacrifice. For this reason, therefore, brothers, we do not commend those who give themselves up, since the gospel does not give this teaching. So this other account seems to show there there was a problem with people seeking this, I, I guess, kind of this kind of ultimate extreme move, but when they got up to it, they couldn't carry through it, and instead they apostatized. So so the seeking out of martyrdom. Um, well, I mean, the way the martyrdom, call it Polycarp says, we do not commend those who give themselves up. 
it's basically it, it presents instead don't give yourself up you know wait till they catch you and treat that as god's you know kind of providential signal that this is what's meant for you and he will be gracious to you in that don't go looking for the lions well, and you you wonder who the we is because it's clearly not Ignatius, right? I mean, it, right. one of the reasons he does this in this in these letters has to be that he wants his parishioners, that he wants the the people at the churches he's writing to, he wants them to be willing to die. And so maybe maybe he is exaggerating a little bit about his own uh, joy in doing this, but I, I think clearly his end goal here is to get them also to be willing to do it, even if they're not um, overjoyed about it as he, as he is or claims to be. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting that there's uh, there's not unanimity. <laughs> yeah, if it makes sense, or or maybe if it's not so much unanimity as there is, uh, uh, they're not necessarily in contradiction so much as they are recognizing that this is this is kind of a nuanced situation and we're not recommending we're we're not recommending this way for everyone in the same way that they don't recommend the way of the desert or the way sure. of the cloister for everyone well and i i suspect the the further you go up the hierarchy the more you would be expected to do something like this right i mean that's true i mean the 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 bishops with the absolute worst reputations uh, were those who uh, recanted in the face of persecution in North Africa, and that's where Donatism comes from. Well, as uh, Ignatius's uncle Ben said, "With great power comes great responsibility." <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's someone else. <laughs> yeah, uh, the uh, the possibility that the bishop would stare uh, stare death in the face and blink. I think is one that would have brought horror into the heart of someone like Ignatius or any Christian at that time. Um, sure. Especially those who were, because they were, um, they were taught to look to bishops as examples. It is the bishop who sets, um, sets an example for moral living. It is the bishop who answers your questions. Um, for a bishop to recant would be a horrifying thing. So as he goes, um, he's sending all of these letters, letting letting everyone know that he goes faithfully. Well, Nathan, Christians in Ignatius's day had tense relations, not only with the Roman government, hence lions, but also with the Jewish community. So where do you see that rising in these letters? So first of all, one thing that we should note is that in the Epistle to the Philadelphians, there's a pretty strong distinction uh, between those he calls the circumcised and on one hand and those who teach Judaism on the other hand. So, you know, in, in Paul's letters, I mean, you know, those two groups, I mean, you could be forgiven for regarding them as basically coextensive, but he makes a distinction, and the distinction seems to be one of doctrine and discipline uh, rather than those who have passively, you know, undertaken the ritual of circumcision. There is, as far as I could tell, and David, by all means, correct me on this uh, if I'm wrong, uh, there doesn't seem to be a an ethnic or a racial notion of Judaism. It still seems to be um, 
a sense that, you know, the ethnic Judeans who, who come to be called Jews are one of the nations of the world. And what's at stake here is not the, uh, you know, national and geographic heritage, uh, but rather the teaching. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when he talks about the teaching, there's really two facets to what he objects to. One of them is uh, that, you know, those who live, quote, in Judaism, uh, as he says in uh, Magnesians 8, uh, they are people who do not know grace uh, in the way that Christians should know grace. And again, this is uh, seems to be harking back to uh, the strong limitations that we see in the New Testament that some in the community are putting on those uh, who are not ethnic, ethnically Jewish and those who do not undertake circumcision in order to become, uh, you know, uh, secondarily Jewish, if you will, in order to enter into the community. Uh, that seems still to be a concern here uh, in the first part of the second century. And the other one, and I thought this was interesting, is that, uh, again, in the letter to the Magnesians, uh, he conceives of, of Christianity. And it is interesting that, you know, as early as the second century, we do have a sense that Judaism is a body of doctrine or at least an intellectual tendency in distinction to, with Christianity. Uh, I think we do right to note that Christianity is a Jewish tradition all the way back to its roots, Uh, but Judaism is something that is distinctive here. And he, again, in that letter to the Magnesians, uh, he conceives of Christianity as something that begins with Judaism, but then expands out uh, beyond the bounds of Judaism. So therefore, to go to retreat back into Judaism is to contradict the the mission of Christianity. The mission of Christianity is to go beyond Judaism, not to retreat back into it. So those are the two big threads. I mean, I, I saw most of this material, like I said, in letters to the Magnesians and the Philadelphians. Uh, were there any other passages, David, that you'd want to uh, highlight here? Well, just to milk Magnesians further, uh, I think there's a reference to Sunday. I get that, oh. by the way. Oh. <laughs> How long have you been waiting to say that? All day. All day long. Uh, there is a, a contrast between uh, what they call, no. He, he uses the phrase, no longer keeping the Sabbath versus living a life ruled by the Lord's day, which seems to me to be a pretty clear reference to we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. Right, right. Yeah, uh, he does He does take that stand against Sabbatarianism, I do remember now. So, uh, you know, for those who are, you know, kind of working out a, uh, a genealogy of that particular aspect of Christian worship, um, uh, Ignatius is, is an early witness to that uh, that particular difference being one of the markers that uh, late first century, early second century Christians are turning to for what what marks their community of well at this point largely um, you know Torah readers <laughs> from that other community of Torah readers uh, you know before there is a you know, a clearly demarcated uh, canon of accepted apostolic writings, the canon that everyone's referring to and building their arguments on and, and reading for edification and doctrine and, uh, and etc. 
is is the Old Testament, you know, which if, if you're interested in that, uh, dear listener, go back and a ways back and listen to our episode about uh, Clement's epistle to the Corinthians in which he is arguing for all sorts of Christian doctrine and ethics based on the Psalms or Exodus. Uh, so, yeah, sun- Sunday worship pretty early emerging as that as a as a distinctive marker i think is worth noting anything else uh in that vein uh michael that you'd want to bring out no i think you guys hit the important stuff cool we've mentioned polycarp let's bring him up again because ignatius writes a letter to polycarp and in that you know as you told us nathan they are said to have been students together. Um, uh, certainly they were also bishops in uh, reasonably, uh, they were reasonably close together, if I remember rightly. So we can get a glimpse of a relationship of colleagues in this letter. What does one bishop say to another on his way to die, Michael? Well, um, None of these letters are particularly meaty theology. They're, they're much more practical than that. But the letter to Polycarp, I think, is more practical even than the other letters. There, there's, there's not a lot of room for musing. And it's, it's a lot of very direct instructions about what he should do as the bishop. Um, his, his, his foremost concern is that Polycarp does the things that a bishop ought to do. And so by reading this letter, we can kind of see some of the things that bishops in the at the beginning of the second century were expected to do. Um, my favorite phrase in the whole thing is, bear the diseases of all as a perfect athlete. So there's this, <laughs> there's this sense that the... Um, I, I, don't, I don't really understand the metaphor, but clearly there's a sense that uh, the bishop is meant to suffer when the people suffer. And, and depending on how you read diseases, it might even be some sort of atonement for the sins of your parishioners. And, and I mean, there's some, there's some contemporary, uh, there's some contemporary backing to that. I believe that when you go to confession, uh, the priest also does the penance he gives you to do. And so I, that, that's what that made me think of. I don't know if I don't know if we can draw a straight line between those two practices, but uh, maybe a curvy line. Uh, he, he says to take special care of the disciples who don't have an easy time with it. He says that, that uh, if you love good disciples, it's no credit to you. Rather, with gentleness, bring the more troublesome ones into submission. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's not just about kind of hanging out with Susie Christian and Charlie Church. Like, like the bishop's job is to disciple the undisciplable in some ways. It's a, it's a, it's a tough job, you know. Even if you don't have to be eaten by a lion to do it, um, he he t- he tells he tells him that that being a bishop requires an enormous amount of perseverance. And diligence, and and um, that even as good as Polycarp is, he needs to be better at that. Just because it's it's a almost literally a superhuman job, right? And and so, um, you you can never you can never be too uh, diligent, too perseverance. Is that a word? Persevering. 
Pers- uh, he tells him. Yeah, something like that. He tells them, and this is very much in line with the Book of Acts, to take care of the widows. He he tells them to uh, to treat the slaves well, but also not to let them get conceited. So he's kind of maintaining um, the Roman system of slavery, which you know I, I I'm sure we all wish that Paul and the post-apostolic fathers would have taken a hard line against slavery, but they don't. But at the same time, um, they don't treat it as a good thing. Just you know stay in your station and and be virtuous within your station i guess is the message to slaves there uh, he says to to preach sermons about bad things that people do not about bad things that specific people do but bad things that we're all tempted to do and so the the purpose of the sermon in some ways is to scare people off of those practices and to give them the strength to resist them and then he says what you would expect him to say which is pay attention to your bishop so you're, you know, he's got a position of authority in the hierarchy, but there's still people above him. And the fact that he has some power doesn't mean that he gets to do whatever he wants. Instead, he has to submit just as the people under him submit to him and just as the people above him submit to God. So that hierarchy is maintained all the way down the line. It's a very, um, it's, it's a, a very straightforward, practical letter. And I wonder to what degree clergy still find it helpful whether whether today's bishops see this as a description of their jobs or whether this is something that's been passed on to the parish priests or what Mm -hmm. it reminds me of of something of the genre that is later going to become gregory's pastoralia um or or other you know other other writings in which uh the The, the service of of that particular office is 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 dealt with in that kind of nitty-gritty and and, and practical way um, there's a few bits of that in uh, in the New Testament the uh, the pastoral epistles um, some significant chunks of James and first Peter especially um, but uh, I, I I love I love that I love that uh, kind of inside baseball. Um, that's not even that's not quite the right term, but the the professional talk, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I find that uh, just really fascinating. Well, we have been paying attention to stuff that I thought was neat and stuff that uh, I believed Ignatius thought was important, but there is a lot more here that we've had to leave on the wayside. And what's one of those important things, Nathan? One moment in the uh, epistle to the Ephesians that I found especially fascinating uh, is this idea that uh, the incarnation was somehow a deception against Satan and that the, uh, the star of Bethlehem was a sort of signal flare so that the Magi could para-drop in behind enemy lines. <laughs> um, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm uh, how should we say expanding a little bit, but not by much. Uh, I remember hearing about this in church history classes, but it is fun to uh, encounter it, you know, uh, in what I have to assume is one of its uh, early iterations. Cool. What about you, Michael? I've I've hinted at it um, all through this episode, but the hierarchy is such a major theme in these letters, David, that I was a little surprised you assigned them. And then I was surprised there wasn't a question about them just because 
everything Ignatius says is completely oriented around the church hierarchy. And it doesn't seem to be exactly the hierarchy the church uh, has today. Uh, he doesn't make mention of the Bishop of Rome, for example. And, and I don't think he mentions priests. I think everybody is a bishop. But the hierarchy itself is super important. And there's essentially no way to be saved and no way to be sanctified if you go outside that hierarchy. He says over and over again, you should not do anything in church if a bishop is not present. And, you know, there's a, there's a kind of reading of early Christianity that says it's basically anarchic. You have those small house churches that each runs its own. And, you know, maybe that was true for 50 years. But by 110, when, um, when Ignatius dies, it is definitely not true anymore. The hierarchy is essential to Ignatius's vision of, of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go, go back and review the Clement episode, uh, dear listeners, because Clement makes some similar points uh, to a church in which uh, the young and restless are trying to displace uh, the old wise and appointed by apostles. Oh, you mean Pope Clement? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I don't know. I feel like I feel like I uh, I was kind of digging for that in my question about unity, Michael. But maybe I, I assumed and, and you I had. Thought I talked about it when I answered that. Yeah, uh, but but I mean, it's not just the unity piece, right? It's everything. Yeah. yeah. Literally, almost everything he says leads back to that um, hierarchical question. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, I didn't mean to suggest that either of you had not right. done your jobs well enough. No, I, I, to, no, I, to, I, I, to I appreciate that. To a man holding that. a pope, everything is a schism. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I can't expect any better from you Protestant dogs. Uh, uh, imperfectly joined brethren, if I remember rightly. Oh, what, what is Marcel's term? Separated brethren. Uh, heretics, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Um, yeah, so in, in spite of my schismatic tendency to try to um, suppress Ignatius's hierarchical urges, yeah, that thing is right there in the foreground. Um, it's not background, it's foreground, it's every other thing he says. So, yeah, that's there. Well, what is up next week? Next week, uh, listeners, uh, you, you should enjoy this. Uh, will be the beginning of the annual Christian Humanist Radio Network crossover event. Uh, this year, the shows are taking on the films of M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, so tune in not only to the Christian Humanist podcast, but also the Christian Feminist podcast, the Sectarian Review, uh, the City of Man, uh, which ones am I forgetting, the Book of Nature. Are any other shows doing an episode this go-around, Michael? No, Restoration and Before They Were Live are both sitting it out, although the hosts of Reforma uh, Restoration and Before They Were Live will be on other shows. And by the way, as a Stone Campbell person, the, the title of that podcast always makes me double take. But, sure. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the week after that, listeners, uh, since we're going to be coming up on a particular un particularly unpleasant election, uh, we're going to have a conversation about election, not the election not 2020's election, but the concept election. That will certainly be also fun and not at all controversial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Now, now it'll be David's turn to call the two of us uh, heretics. 
Yay! Well, in light of all that, dear listeners, maybe you've got lots of feedback. Uh, if you do, we're looking forward to it. You can send it to us at email that threechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it on the show notes to this particular episode on our blog, christianhumanist.org. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, ch at ch radio network. And uh, Michael and I are also on Twitter at uh, Kel Bummer and The Real Grubsy. So uh, we love we love your feedback. We love to hear from you. Um, we've enjoyed uh, recently some email interactions and some Twitter interactions. It's been it's been good times. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, uh, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and Michael's currently editing us. So, on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore. Let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.